Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast, a podcast about the interconnections between biology and history. I'm one of your co-hosts, William. And I'm the other co-host, Balint. If you're interested in the topics we talk about and want to dive in further, you can find links and show notes on our website, www.wolvesandwheatpodcast.com. Or if you have questions or comments, reach out to us through email at wolvesandwheatpodcast at gmail.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Walls and Wheat Podcast. This is Volume 1, Episode 6, Spread the Bread, Part 1. So yeah, you heard it right. This is Part 1 of a two-part episode, because as we were collecting information for this episode, we decided that it would be too much to squeeze into one single take. So instead, we split it into two episodes. So, um, today we will be talking about the spread of agriculture from the Fertile Crescent. And first, uh, I will talk a little bit about the geographical limitations when it comes to spreading agriculture from this area. Uh, Because if you look at the map, uh, three out of the four cardinal directions uh, pose some significant geographical limitations. So, to the north, you have the Eurasian steppes and then the Siberian taiga and tundra. And at the time, uh, these areas were too cold for the crops to be cultivated because cold-resistant strains haven't been selected by the ancient agriculturalists yet. To the east, uh, you have either deserts like the Taklamakan or mountain ranges like the Himalayas, which were near impassable, or even though humans could traverse them, but uh, these areas are not ideal for any type of uh, agriculture or crop cultivation. And to the south, we have the Indian Ocean. So for this reason, uh, today we will be mostly talking about the spread of of agriculture westward, because that was the most convenient way for humans to migrate from the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. And as you also touched on, it's not necessarily just strict geological limitations, but a lot of climactic limitations at the start of uh, the domestication of the Levant founder crop packet species, because some of these genes just haven't been selected for yet. Um, But when we do talk about the successful expansion, like you said, to the West and and the beginning of the spread of agriculture, there are two models that have been posited as to how agriculture spread um, by human intervention. And the two models are cultural diffusion and demic diffusion. And what cultural diffusion posits is that hunter-gatherers gradually adopted farming from their neighbors through cultural exchange. Basically what this means is that the hunter-gatherers observed their agricultural neighbors and started to adopt farming practices and also by receiving information from the farmers. And the second model is demic diffusion, which states that population growth among farmers started a migration towards regions inhabited by hunter-gatherers, carrying farming with them. So basically this means that the population density of agricultural societies started getting too big that they had to move, and where they moved may or not have had hunter-gatherers, and they may or may not have displaced them through Um, different methods instead of the hunter-gatherers learning farming from um, their neighbors. 
Um, so most of the evidence actually points towards the demic diffusion model of, of agricultural expansion, although it is important to note that these two models are not mutually exclusive, and there are some parts of, of each model um, that occurred in the vast uh, diversity and expanse of agricultural expansion. Yeah, so one way to visualize demic diffusion is uh, think of it as a human wave. So you have agriculturalists moving into a region where they start uh, farming and that allows them to have a high population number. And then when they start overpopulating in that area, then some of them move into the neighboring area, which has uh, a lo much lower population of local hunter-gatherers. So it's kind of like a, a wave of, of uh, expanding populations. So how did demic diffusion manifest itself in practice? So what were the first baby steps uh, of agriculture uh, moving into new areas? That's a great question. And first, before we can talk about it spread into more geographically, or I guess if you want to say culturally distinct regions, it first had to spread within its own area of the Levant first. And the initial spread of agriculture and the domesticated uh, crop package species from the Levant initially had a very slow spread of about one kilometer per year. Um, and there are some exceptions in some places like the Mediterranean, as we'll cover later in this episode and in part two. And it also happened a lot slower in the Iberian Peninsula, which we'll also uh, lightly touch on in part two. Um, but in terms of the initial outward expansion, uh, it was not very quick and it was mostly contained to the southern and central Levant for the first four to five hundred years of agricultural origins. So it uh, apparently took a while for agriculture to kind of get off the ground. And what were the first regions where it gained a foothold uh, after the initial uh, rise of agriculture? So what were the first areas that uh, the agriculturalists uh, started to spread into. So some of the first, as I mentioned and referred to, uh, geographically and culturally distinct areas that agriculture first spread um, are southeastern Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and Cyprus, which is an island south of Turkey and west of Syria. And this occurred around 8,700 years before present. So I'm kind of curious, and also I'm guessing some of our listeners are also curious, that what is the evidence uh, that uh, indicates this? So is it more archaeological records, or genetic evidence, or a combination of both, or something else? Like How do we know this? It's actually more of a combination of a few different things, and one type of evidence weighs more heavily in one area uh, compared to the other. So uh, what does this mean? Um, basically in Cyprus, a lot of the evidence is archeobiological in nature. And that means that the first arrival in the records of the Levant founder crop package species and also substance animals first start appearing in the archeobiological records around 8,700 years before present. And that means that these um, crops and these animal species were not native to the island, meaning that human intervention was involved and in their introduction into these records. 
And the evidence in Anatolia is a bit more circumstantial and a bit more um, archaeopological in, in nature and architecture-wise because the evidence here is a last lack of Pleistocene or hunter-gatherer settlements in the area and the appearance of a Neolithic or more agriculturalist-like settlement that dates back to 8,400 years before present. I see. So we're slowly get, uh, getting started here. So obviously agriculture didn't just stop here, but it spread further and further away. So uh, what, what were the next uh, stepstones after Cyprus and Anatolia? So after Cyprus and Anatolia was settled by the farmers, the next distinct areas to uh, have agriculture spread to them were Crete in mainland Greece. And these regions were most likely settled around like about a thousand or so years after Anatolian Cyprus. So around the late eighth to early seventh millennia before present. And do we know uh, where these populations came from into Crete and the south of the Balkan Peninsula? So did they come from Anatolia or did they come from further south, so uh, the Levant region? So this is a great question, and the evidence points most likely to the original colonists of Crete and mainland Greece being from Cyprus and or the Levant area, because the genetics of the plants found in Crete and mainland Greece are more similar to the crops found in the Levant and Cyprus at the time than they were to Anatolia. Um, and then in my opinion, another strong indicator is the lack of evidence in modern day Istanbul around this time of a Neolithic uh, settlement there. And the reason why I find this interesting is because Istanbul is, is um, broken up by the Bosphorus Strait, which means that um, one side is on the European and one side is on the Asian continent. So if humans were to come from Anatolia to Greece, you would assume that they would have probably stopped over somewhere in this area. And the lack of evidence there um, really suggests that they came from either the Levant or Cyprus. And again, my personal opinion, I would venture to say Cyprus due to the fact that these populations on Cyprus um, had to already uh, master maritime um, exploration, if you will, to get to Cyprus to begin with. So um, it's my opinion that they came from Cyprus using their their maritime um, information to then settle new areas. One, one thing to keep in mind there as well is that the Bosphorus is notoriously difficult to navigate uh, through uh, because of the cross currents between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. So that probably made crossing the Bosphorus quite a, a dangerous task. So it makes more sense that the people who settled mainland, mainland Greece came from the Aegean Sea and not just like straight across the Bosphorus Strait. What I want to ask is, we also mentioned that we would talk about North Africa. And uh, do we know when the founder crop packing species first appeared uh, in that area? Yeah, so North Africa is actually a pretty interesting region um, and case study in general because the first evidence of the founder crop package species making it to North Africa uh, is from around 7,600 years before present. So about a millennia after agriculture had spread to Anatolian Cyprus and pretty much contemporary with its spread to Crete and mainland Greece. 
and this evidence was actually found in Morocco. Um, and there are a lot of similarities in northern Morocco and the Iberian Peninsula in terms of the radiocarbon dates in the crop packages from early Neolithic sites. And this evidence points most likely to a simultaneously east to west agricultural spread on the shores of the Western Mediterranean from maritime populations. And the evidence of these dates in, in northern Morocco are the same evidence for uh, Anatolia, Cyprus, Crete, mainland Greece, um, being the first time that these non-native uh, plant and animal species first started to appear in the biological records. Well, that's interesting that, you know, Morocco is the furthest away from uh, the eastern Mediterranean that we were talking about up to this point. And still, it is the first one where these crops show up. So obviously, there's quite a few places between Morocco and Cyprus, for example. And a good candidate for farming is obviously the Valley of the Nile in Egypt. So I'm trying to segue here uh, into the uh, early Egyptian agriculture. So when and how agriculture started? Because it seems like a very good candidate for, for farming in general. Yeah, so again, that's why I said North Africa is such an interesting case study because, yeah, here you have Morocco being the first um, North African uh, region to have the Levant um, package species of agriculture. Um, but in Egypt, there's a lot of evidence of at least animal husbandry going on before they had the Levant founder crop, crop package species which wasn't introduced into the area until around the fifth millennia uh, before present. Um, but this pre-dynastic Egypt was very, very quick to take up this agriculture and these new um, species that were introduced. So this suggests that the Egyptians had the knowledge of agriculture, uh, but they were just limited due to the crops that they had around them at the time. Some they they failed to domesticate because the the grains and the cereals they tried to domesticate had um, too brittle of, of of reiki, as we explained in um, at length in previous episodes why that is very detrimental to the agricultural pursuit. Um, but not only that, but there's some minor uh, crops still used today um, that Egypt used that were domesticated way before this fifth millennia before present. Um, so that's when the Levant founder package species made it their way, but that, that was not the start of agriculture in Egypt. That's very interesting. And it's, it also shows that for domestication to turn out fine, you need a lot of prerequisites. And if one of them is missing or one of them is not perfect, then it can really hinder the whole progress. So in this case, the climatic uh, and geographic prerequisites were there, humans were there. Uh, the crops were there, but they were biologically not as uh, good candidates for domestication as the ones uh, in the uh, Fertile Crescent. The only area in North Africa that we haven't touched on is the one between Morocco and uh, Egypt. So what is modern day Algeria, Tunisia and uh, Libya. So what can, what can you tell us about these regions? So when did the crops show up in these areas? 
Yeah, so that's that's also a great point you bring up about kind of needing the the perfect culmination in order for domestication to occur, and also just the importance of the genetic diversity of the crops themselves to be able to undergo these these changes and thrive in all these different environments. Um, but in terms of Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, the story there is very similar to the story of Egypt, and I think we're going to plan to touch on some of these more um sub origin um domestication events that happened in places like Africa where they did have their own um domestication um events occurring um but these the vont founder crop package species didn't appear in Algeria and Tunisia and Libya and the rest of North Africa like I said around 5000 bef years before present similar to Egypt and another reason for this too could be that they had a very strong um fish economy because they were so close to to the sea um and there's some evidence suggesting that having a um a strong aquatic um economy kind of reduces the need for a larger um agricultural uh economy yeah it makes sense if you have alternative food sources uh something that we touched uh on way back in the second episode that ancient hunter gatherers had a very variable uh, palette of food sources. Obviously, if you have a lot of other uh, food from not farming, but some other practices, then you you don't really need agriculture per se. So that makes sense. Um, what other evidence is there of early agriculture in the region in terms of archeological findings? So that's a great question. And it brings me to a segue about pottery, um, which is a very important tool in archaeological um, studies. And one of the reasons why is it, it's so significant is to the why pottery evolved in the first place, because we have instances and evidence of humans turning mud and, and dirt into stone and ceramics um, in terms of ceramic figurines that were found some 25,000 years ago or so. But it wasn't until about 10,000 or so years ago um, that we first get utilitarian uses of these ceramics in, in the form of pottery. And the reason why this is important is because with pots, you can now, uh, with ceramic pots, and um, compared to baskets, you can now store liquids and you can also heat up your food because as we talked before some of these crops that are being cultivated have to be prepared uh with heat prior to being consumed to make them more palatable or edible or digestible or what have you so pottery is a very important um cultural marker in terms of what the economics of of the culture and population are like and, and what their mode of substance is um so again, pottery in this region dates back to around 10,000 years before present, which is 5,000 years before the introduction of the founder crop packet species, which uh, heavily suggests that they had already had knowledge with needing to increase their food supply and also needing to heat up their food. Um, another interesting thing is that this pottery is called the added wavy line pottery. And going with the theme of, of the maritime substance, they actually would make these wavy lines with the spines from catfish. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And uh, just to touch on this point of pottery a little bit more, 
Um, it's important to remember that we are talking about pre-literature uh, cultures here. So the first writing systems haven't been invented yet. So what archaeologists can usually follow when they try to categorize distinct uh, cultures is artifacts, namely the pottery that you mentioned. So the the number, the shape, size, uh, and the ornamentation of the ceramics uh, really helps archaeologists to distinguish between different uh, pre-literate cultures. Uh, just something that I wanted to mention. Yeah, exactly. So that's um, an interesting marker for how we can um, theorize that these populations already had knowledge of, of agricultural practices um, prior to their adoption of the Levant founder crop package species. And there could have been a wide variety of regions for the late adaptation of these species. Um, with the one example or one exception being Morocco, which is very interesting because Morocco, as, as we said before, was uh, founded by colonists and agriculturalists around the same time as Crete and mainland Greece. Um, and obviously they had to do this by transversing the sea. Um, so I think this would be an interesting time to kind of look at what these boats might have looked like that these humans used in order to um, expand uh, the agriculturalist territory, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, there's a very good article on this topic uh, by Blue Bank and Strasser from 1991, where they calculate that based on reconstruction of a 10 meter long log boat, so a log boat is just a huge log that's hollowed out and carved into a shape of a boat. Um, so a 10 meter long log boat could carry a crew of about 10 people with plenty of cargo space um, and it could sail about 30 kilometers a day. And they calculated that uh, 40 colonists would need about 5 to 10 breeding pairs of domesticated animals and about 250 kilograms of grain uh, to kickstart a new colony. And this would add up to about 15 to 20 tons of cargo. So this would require about 10 to 15 ships carrying one to two tons of cargo each. Or you could do the same trip with a fewer amount of, uh, amount of ships doing the trip multiple times. And as for technology, it could have either been these log boats or uh, another technique that was commonly used uh, and in certain areas it's still used uh, as of today, is creating a wooden frame, or maybe uh, you could create it from bones, but wood is more common. So create a wooden frame and spread uh, animal hides over it. And this is obviously more labor intensive, but the, the upside is that the boat is a lot lighter, so the crew could actually pick it up and carry it over land. So with either of the log boat or this uh, wooden frame plus animal hides boat, these ancient agriculturalists could uh, easily uh, sail and colonize new, new regions relatively fast. I find it fascinating just like this leap in, in technological ingenuity of, of making these boats and, and how that impacted so much the speed at which uh, agriculture is really able to to spread out throughout the world. Um, you just take kind of your your little colony ship, if you will, and, and take the bare bones that you need to kickstart agriculture in your new home world, 
and then boom, you're off and running. Um, so because of, of this new like efficiency of, of uh, colonization and expansion, like what was the timeline like then in the Western Mediterranean? Like how fast were they able to spread now with this technology? Uh, compared to what we talked about earlier, uh, you know, spreading one kilometer per year um, when it was still in the fertile crescent, agriculture spread very fast in kind of like rapid fire succession of small jumps. Uh, and it's important to mention that these jumps are often called leapfrog migration, which is a term that's most commonly used for migratory birds, but it also kind of applies here. So what it means is that the migrating band uh, did not always relocate to the territory that was immediately adjacent to them, but instead it traveled a bit further away, um, bypassed the, the neighbors, often using these boats that we mentioned, and it traveled a bit further away. And this created kind of like a patchwork, or like a mosaic-like pattern of Neolithic settlements. And as for the timelines that you asked, um, it was quite fast, so the earliest Neolithic remnants in northern Italy are found around 7,700 before present, while there are some Neolithic sites in modern-day Portugal and Spain that date back to about 7,400 and 7,300 years before present. Uh, also, what we mentioned about Morocco, 7,600, uh, is also in this range. So we can see that uh, this uh, this spread in the Western Mediterranean occurred over the course of just a couple of centuries, uh, spreading from northern Italy into the Iberian Peninsula and Morocco um, by humans hopping along the Mediterranean coastline in these tiny boats. Yeah, just I find it so fascinating how, like you said, the original spread and like I highlighted before, out of out of the Levant into like just the neighboring areas of the Levant. I mean, it was relatively self-contained for the first four for the first four to five hundred years, and then all of a sudden, in this very short period of time, it's landing in Italy, Portugal, Spain, Africa, Greece. I mean, that's five completely distinct regions, all within the course of of a, a few hundred years. Um, and I think this explanation of of the technology and how humans were able to expand so quickly is such a great jumping off point and such a great cliffhanger to lead us into part two of spread the bread um, because next time we're going to look at how this emerging maritime technology vastly changed the landscape of europe so thank you for joining our show again and we hope you're ready for the next episode hey 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 wolves and wheat every day